Welcome to the Global Investor Podcast, a show that focuses on helping foreign investors enter the lucrative U.S. real estate market. Host Charles Carrillo combines decades of real estate investing experience with a professional background in international banking to interview experts in all areas of U.S. real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Charles Carrillo. Welcome to another episode of the Global Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Crillo. Today, we have Alina Trigrub. Alina is the founder and managing partner of Samo Financial, a private equity real estate investment firm. She hosts two meetup groups in New York and New Jersey and has helped her investors invest in over 1,200 apartments, over $10 million in self-storage complexes, and over $5 million in uh, mobile home parks. So how are you doing this morning? Doing great, Charles. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I'm really excited to be sharing some words of wisdom with your audience. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. It's great to have someone that's very experienced in... um, Usually, we'll get someone that's in one of the asset classes. But since you've put investors together and deals together in multiple asset classes, it's it's great to be able to uh, kind of pick your brain a little bit as we uh, kind of go through these. so, Alina, give us a little professional background on yourself prior to uh, starting in, in Samuel Financial and starting to invest in real estate. Absolutely. So, uh, my background is in accounting. I started out as a tax accountant um, many years ago in, in Big Four. I was with, with Ernst Young, but um, never really enjoyed doing accounting and taxes. Uh, so, after trying public and private, I decided to switch. And I switched to a uh, technology world. So um, it was a completely different switch. And my roles have been within technology world for the last 18 years, but more or less about being a liaison connecting business and technology world. And I, I've, um, um, I, I like that experience. It's great. But I was always, number one, fascinated with real estate. And number two, as a former tax accountant, taxes has always been in the back of my mind. I was always thinking, how how can I lower taxes for, for our family? How can I lower the AMT? Because AMT, alternative minimum tax has always been a problem. Um, and I thought that there should be a way to connect the, my passion for real estate and uh, minimizing taxes. So I started researching, wanted to buy something locally where I live. Um, it's a tri-state, New York, New Jersey. Uh, that turned out to be a challenge as uh, the prices and the taxes are extremely high in this area. So that did not turn out so well in the sense that I didn't buy anything locally. Um, however, that pushed me to start researching long distance investing. And that's how I came across the world of syndication. So after doing additional research on private placements, I decided to take action and started investing as an equity partner, which is passive investor myself. And after doing um, like investing in a number of um, offerings, I realized the tremendous benefits of you know number one being passive, mm-hmm. number two um, tax advantages, is number three social aspect of it because in a way we were going into community and putting our efforts into improving the community and helping local folks to get a better place to live, you know, having parks, maybe pet parks, and just better home conditions. So it was tremendous impact and um, I decided that I need to bring it to the market. It's not something uh, well advertised or uh, well known by you know the, the folks in the community and that's uh, that helped the, the idea of my own company, Samo Financial, to be born with the sole purpose of helping others um, 
to build their wealth, not only through Wall Street stuff, which everyone's already doing through their 401ks or IRAs, uh, but help them diversify even further outside of Wall Street into real estate, which is um, the area that's uh, that offers a lot of more calculated risks, if you will, uh, where Wall Street is strictly like, you know, throwing in the dark in the dark in my sense. So that's that's how I got started in real estate. That's awesome. So normally when we have someone on the show, it's like multifamily is usually the biggest thing. So there's, you know, it's easy to, to find uh, investors for that. It's easy to get financing. Um, I'm very interested in, you know, from self-storage, mo- mobile home parks, in apartments, what is your favorite asset class of those? Um, sure. Um, so the favorite asset class depends um, on each individual deal. I I wouldn't say that one or the other is more favorite than the uh, than the other asset class. So um, when we select a particular asset class, we also look at the market, uh, the demographics, market conditions, um, and what the deal itself offers. Like for example. For mobile home parks, there are specific states that we would only go to um, to buy mobile home parks. And for instance, Arizona or the Carolinas would be some of those states where we would go. But again, the market conditions for that local area have to be for favorable for the asset class for us to even consider it. And then we look at the offering itself. So. To answer your question, I, I don't uh, favor one as a class over the other. I really like them all. Uh, but what I did do is I also started with multifamily, just like a lot of other folks. But gradually, mm-hmm. as I progressed in my research and as, as I realized the demand for m- further diversification for myself and my clients, um, I started doing research on additional asset classes one at a time uh, to determine which ones to add to our portfolio. I'm doing that now as well, looking at other asset classes, but it's, you know, the, the idea is do the research on one thing at a time to make sure you really understand um, how the asset works and how it performs in, in the different market conditions. And that's what I did as well. How does it differ in regards to risk versus returns uh, for the different asset classes? Are returns pretty similar between those different asset classes? And one more thing too is since I've not, you know, it's how does in, um, if we have a pullback, how does mm-hmm. that differ in between, say, self storage and mobile home parks? How does sure. it? Sure. So in terms of the returns, uh, they're more or less similar. Um, Self-storage and mobile home parks tend to be a a little more recession resistant. And that's what the um, research from prior recessions shows. Um, You know, and with storage, I I guess it's more or less um, a given. People understand that unfortunately during recessions, a lot of folks lose their jobs and they need to downsize. So the the first step that they take when they downsize, um, they gather all their belongings that they don't want to give away or sell, and they put them in a storage uh, for um, undetermined duration of time. And at a time, that duration becomes permanent and they continue paying for the storage. So the storage tends to perform even slightly better during the recession times. In, ter- in terms of mobile homes, uh, so our strategy is uh, not to go into the extremes, which means that we're not going to like really 
poor neighborhoods and we don't really go into luxury like the newest uh, freshly built um, mobile home parks we go into so-called bread and butter um, into those B and C areas where we know that the workforce housing type of people leave people that uh, leave in mobile homes because um, the area around them does not allow them to afford living um, in the apartment it's just too expensive and that's why they choose mobile homes um, but in a lot of cases they buy those mobile homes so they become mobile home parks owners and um you know as a owner of a property you, you want to make sure that it's it's a pride of ownership so a lot of people once they buy them um they renovate them uh, they beautify them and you know make uh, those mobile homes look uh, as pretty as possible because uh that's that's something they own and they live in there for a long time um so so that helps us as a park owners as well uh, when uh, the mobile homes are well maintained by their owners and uh, we do tend to pay with those and even if they not owned originally by the, the mobile home park by the mobile home owners um, what we try to do is we try to offer lease to own um, with uh, different options so uh, the tenant would at least consider buying it um, in in the long run and we, we help them with financing options and so forth um, to, to, to get to that point. I don't know if I answered the full your question, uh, but I think I did. Yeah, no, of course. I mean, uh, it's just, it's it's very interesting. Um, there's kind of a different, I mean, with the mobile home park, as I understand it, and I've spoken to operators that specialize in them, and it's always, if someone's unable to, they lose their house, mm -hmm. going to a mobile home park is the next most similar, but less Correct. expensive option. Yep. Because you still are not connected to anybody else. Um, you still have the pride of ownership if it is your own trailer. And I speak to other operators and they say that um, the whole goal is not to own any of the trailers, but also to get the ownership to the tenants as fast as possible. Is that true? Yeah. So you're not exactly. like running a D-class apartment complex? Or Correct. Something? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. You, you try to um, get the owners to buy those mobile homes as soon as possible. And again, it, it, it benefits both the mobile home park owner and the tenants, you know, because the tenants become the pr uh, proud owners of a property and the mobile home park owner um, has a lot less expenses. So that uh, lowers the expenses tremendously. And, you know, maybe the um, overall bottom line is slightly over because now you're charging for the pad itself. You're not charging for the mobile home. But again, it lowers your maintenance expenses tremendously as well. So you um, have a lot less maintenance to care about and um, ratio-wise, your income becomes exponentially higher in that respect. Yeah, that's great. Now, you were mentioned North the Carolinas and Arizona. Yeah. Are your markets that you focus on for... Um, any type of purchases is all very similar. I imagine Southeast and Midwest. Is that kind of where you guys are targeting? More or less, more or less. Yeah, we, we don't try to target uh, same market for different asset classes for us. Again, the priority is uh, that the market itself favors uh, the asset class and uh, works well for a specific asset class. So that's number one priority. But then we look at the overall market conditions and how the specific asset class had performed historically in a particular area. Okay. Awesome. So investors that invest with your firm are uh, considered like limited partners or passive investors. Um, right. Someone that's never invested passively into real estate, 
explain how that works and what kind of the whole the process and what their responsibility is once they've chosen an investment vehicle? Absolutely. So for, for someone who has never invested in real estate, uh, the path to start investing is slightly longer because I push them to get educated. Um, I, I send them the educational materials. Um, I recommend books, podcasts. Um, I've written a number of articles to help people get acclimated uh, with the terms, with, with the overall process. Um, and I typically tr- try to write my articles around the questions that come from my existing investor audience and that helps the cake to the new folks as well. Uh, but my primary goal to make sure that whoever starts investing with us um, has a full understanding of what they're doing and only taking action um, after realizing uh, the pros and cons of the investing and then fully understands that these investments are not FDNC insured and hence that there are risks involved. I, I want folks to know that you know when, when they see the projections, these are just that. These are just projections. Nothing is guaranteed. So uh, the risk is still there. It's just the risk with um, private placements is calculated where the risk with other investments could be uh, more or less, you know, throw in the dark in the dark. And that's why it's, uh, you know, uh, there's a much higher risk in that case. Um, Now, all of your investments are targeted toward accredited investors. Is that correct? Majority of, the, majority of the investments are for accredited. We do have some offerings uh, for sophisticated, non-accredited investors, but there are fewer in, in between. Correct. And just to explain for anybody, it's um, accredited investor, million dollars net worth, or as a couple, they're making $300,000 a year. And they, into the future, they believe they'll make that as well. So... Right. And that net worth excludes primary residence. So for folks living in California or New York, <laughs> your home, your, your condo may cost over a million, but that's not included. So you need to have a net worth outside of your primary residence. With those in, with those investments that are credited, because um, I guess you can speak, what, what, how does it really work with investment term, the returns? Um, do you do quarterly, monthly distributions? I mean, what's normal with the operators that you partner with? Sure. Typically, I would say majority, at least 80% of the operators prefer to do quarterly returns. And uh, nowadays, we tend to do everything through the wire. So we uh, try to shy away from sending the physical checks. In the past, it was more common, but now it's also a matter of convenience. It's a lot easier to send them directly to the bank accounts. Some do monthly, but it's, it's just a lot more overhead. And we try to stay away from that as much as possible. Now, with your background being a CPA, and I imagine you get a ton of deals that come in and you probably handpick, cherry pick the ones that make the sense, make the best sense, right? Less risk with the highest reward. Um, what, what do you do when you're reviewing a deal? Like what, what makes you say, this is something that I want to bring to my, my group of investors and this one is just not gonna, not gonna do it. So, Charles, and I want to make a small correction. Yeah. Um, I was never a CPA, was an accountant, but uh, not, not a CPA. But anyway, okay. uh, n- nevertheless, I still do review the deals. Um, I definitely evaluate the underwriting that's done. Um, it look for mis- I mean, I don't necessarily look for mistakes, but I look how underwriting is done and whether uh, it's done conservatively in my eyes. Um, I, I want to make sure that uh, we don't just go with what the market expectations are, but we try to put the cushion in. And what I mean by that is if let's say the market dictates that uh, rents should be bumped by 5% every single year, 
I want to see 3% rent bumps. And the same applies for expenses. If the market says that the expenses should be bumped by 5% every year, I want to see 7 to 10% bumps in the expenses to make sure we have cushion on both sides. That's, that's important. I also want to see uh, the breakdown, not by year, but I want to see the breakdown uh, monthly because... Uh, that gives you a, a more detailed picture as to what may happen month by month. You may decide to, to have a capital event, let's say, at month 23 or month 21. And I, I want to see that happen um, on your spreadsheet. The same applies to construction. If you're doing renovations, you may decide that all of your innovations are going to be done at month 16. So I, I want to see that breakdown. What is going to happen at month 17 when all of the innovations completed? And I also want to see what's happening on a month to month basis with your vacancies during the renovations, because obviously those are going to be bumped up. The vacancy for the market is, let's say 10%, but you're going through the renovations, then you have to keep that probably as high as 20%, uh, due to the, you know, the uh, union's turnover during extensive innovation. So I'm, I would like to see that on the underwriting. And then um, looking at the quantitative research, I want to make sure that uh, all of the numbers are telling me a full picture. So it's not just cash and cash 8% or IRR, you know, 18%. Uh, all of them combined tell you a full picture. You, you shouldn't be looking at one of them individually. And I uh, happen to, to, you know, write articles about that as well. So for anyone interested, I can send those articles mm -hmm. on how I view that and how I review that as well. Can you uh, explain what a capital event is? Just if sure. you don't understand that. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for the question. Uh, capital event. So potentially if, uh, we've done extensive renovations to the property and its value had appreciated over time, we're at the point where we may decide go, to go back to the bank and do a cash out refinance. So in other words, we would pull some equity out and Guess where the equity goes if we pull it out? It goes back to the investors. Based on your, you know, initial prorata percentage ownership that you invested with us, um, if we pull an equity out, let's say everyone gets uh, thirty percent back. If you put hundred thousand, you're getting thirty thousand. Not that you're just getting thirty thousand back. You're also getting this thirty thousand back tax free. It's because again, it's not a taxable transaction. You're getting. Part, portion of your principal back. Where in Wall Street would you get something like that? This is like unheard of. No, it's great. Yeah, the conservative underwriting is a great thing. I was talking to another underwriter yesterday, and when he looks at a deal, he just takes out the rent increases sure. and just runs the model that way, which is very simplified, but it makes perfect sense because the whole rent model with anything in this value-add industry, a value-add uh, concept through real estate is just you know, you're, you're making it nicer and you're, you're increasing the rent. And the thing is that if you can take out those rent increases, so when you buy it, if something happens, you have a pullback, recession, whatever it might be, you can, the thing will still cash flow. It'll sure. still, you can keep, maintain occupancy. You can do all this and it'll still, you're, you're still paying bills. And if you have to hold off your business plan a little bit. So, well, that's great. So, what um, you host two meetups in New York and New Jersey. Is that one of the primary ways that you find investors or kind of build your whole investor base from the Northeast since it's so difficult to invest? So I, I started Meetup with sole purpose of helping people locally and uh, uh, that would be regardless whether they wanted to be active or passive investors. Uh, these are not my primary source of, of investors, although I do get investors from the Meetups nowadays, but 
a majority of the people come either through referrals or repeat customers mm. um, for, me, the, for the most part. Um, in terms of the meetups, uh, p- people get tremendous value from them and the feedback that I've been getting, uh, especially from my New Jersey meetup, because uh, the frequency is, it happens a lot more often than New York one. Uh, the feedback is exponentially great. Uh, people are very thankful and, you know, I, I even had, um, one member, uh, move away for, for job to another state and he said that whenever he's going to be coming to visit his relatives, he'll try to overlap it with the meetup of time because he's been enjoying our group so much so yeah and I'm, I'm really happy that it brings so much value to others yeah local meetups are a great way of learning and just networking with people that even if they're not active yet or they're not involved with it in one way or another that you're dealing with people that are involved with it and right. it's i mean it's great reading and doing podcast listen to podcasts and all this but when you're actually speaking to someone and you're making you're making that connection it's it's awesome so um i can't stress Absolutely. that enough um so when you're it's you know we have we have some syndicators that listen and you know it's always we have people that want to build a bond with their investors and you're very hands on when you're when you're working right. with your investors yeah. explain how that differs cuz i you know you sometimes speak to other operators and i've invested passively before and you're like well you know i wish i could you know you wish you could i could hear more often from them or i wish i could get this from them um how is it different when you are working with an investor versus the normal normal sponsor that you sure. you don't hear from Absolutely, absolutely. It's uh, when you look at the typical sponsor, um, it's uh, someone who has many different responsibilities. And if the team only has so many partners, if it's one or two, they have to handle all these responsibilities. So when people like myself come in that specifically concentrate on being the investor liaison, our sole purpose is um, to build a relationship with investors, help them get acclimated with the investor process, um, help them select the appropriate investment for them, and then uh, work with the operator on the other end uh, whenever they have the deal offering and invite us to join them in, uh, we decide on which offering we want to invest in. So being in that liaison role um, gives me a much more exposure to the deals out there in another spectrum gives me a, a much greater exposure to the investors and that keeps me much closer to them because that's what I concentrate the majority of my time. I, obviously, I, I do my own underwriting, ev- evaluations, looking at the deals, um, some of the asset management tasks as well. But again, majority of my time is spent uh, as being an investor liaison and not wear many of those hats that the typical operators have to wear. Yeah. It's amazing how many people I've spoken to and I was at a conference a few months back and people they raise their hands how many people are, get emails from syndicators and you you know a lot of people raise their hand how many people wish that they could get get more in contact with their sponsor on deals they've done and it was like sure. the majority of them raised their hand and it's funny that you've invested with someone or and you know these usually these groups will have multiple offerings come out per year and yeah. they don't even handle their current investors. Sure. You know, so it's just, it's, it's just amazing how that works. But, um, other than getting, reading books and uh, maybe going to the meetups, what are, are there any other tips, um, that you or advice that you would offer to someone that's looking to get involved passively or directly, um, in real estate investing? Absolutely. I, I think it's absolutely essential to anyone deciding to invest in real estate in addition to education is to work on their 
self-development because personal development is essential part of uh, becoming an investor. Um, when when you're doing something new, regardless whether it's real estate or um, you know maybe trading bond stocks or ETFs or whatever else you decide to do or uh, you know, uh, buying um, other things, you you have to be open-minded. You you have to be open to to the opportunity. And a lot of people have that closed mind. They're just afraid to take the first step. And that's simply because how we were programmed, how we're educated. Um, I, I think our school system do, don't give, uh, don't spend enough time on educating uh, children on. Uh, and preparing them to the actual financial world. They, they don't talk enough about loans, financial well-being, or how to take care of their finances. And so I believe it all starts in school. And because we, do, we don't have that um, proper financial education in school, I think people need to spend more time when they're young adults and or even after they are young adults, you know, even not millennials, uh, baby boomers, Gen X, everyone, they need to spend some time on um, working on their self-improvement and self-education because it helps them to open up the doors to those opportunities uh, that are available to them. They just don't see them because they're so close-minded. And, um, you know, I, I was um, in the same boat myself. And I, I, until I spent some time on reading books like Miracle Morning or The Richest Man in Babylon or If That Poor That, um, I, you know, I, I, I was in the same boat. I, I was afraid to take the steps. I was afraid to look at anything. It's just... Um, it's just a, a way of life um, that we, we all have and we need to change that. But that in addition to educating yourself, you do need to understand how self-storage works, um, how the market works, the demographics, the recession time. That also is essential part of the education and that comes through books, podcasts and extensive networking with others. It's amazing. People probably, for the most part, I think, don't look into their financials until maybe they're in their early 20s or so out of college and they say, I got a bunch of student debt. I've yep. got a car loan. Yeah. Wow. You know, and it's so easy to acquire debt uh, that like that, that goes down in value or that uh, doesn't make you money compared yeah. to you know buying real estate or something like that. So it's a completely different mindset. So you're 100% correct. Um, so Alina, how can people learn more about uh, your meetups? And I'll put all the links in the bottom, your, uh, yourself and your meetups. Sure. Uh, so my website is semifinancial.com. I'm available on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, uh, bigger pockets. Uh, in terms of the meetups, they both on meetup.com. They're called Power of Passive Investing. One says New York, one says New Jersey. Um, everyone is welcome to join us or reach out to me with any questions. I'm more than happy to help out. Okay. Well, it's awesome. Well, thank you very much for being on the show today. And um, yeah, I look forward to speaking to you in the future. And um, if anybody else also, what we're doing is um, I'm doing a 15-minute call. So if anybody has any questions and wants to set up a strategy call with myself, you can click the link below and do that. But uh, Lena, thank you very much for your time. And uh, I'll speak to you soon. Thank you, Charles. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hi guys, this is Charles from the Global Investors Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you're interested in investing in real estate and you don't know where to begin, set up a free 15-minute strategy call with me at schedulecharles.com. That's schedulecharles.com. 
Thank you for listening to the Global Investor Podcast. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play to get new weekly episodes. For more resources and to receive our newsletter, please visit globalinvestorpodcast.com. And don't forget to join us next week for another episode. Nothing in this episode should be considered specific, personal, or professional advice. Any investment opportunities mentioned on this podcast are limited to accredited investors. Any investments will only be made with proper disclosure, subscription documentation, and are subject to all applicable laws. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, financial, or business professional for individualized advice. Opinions of guests are their own. Information is not guaranteed. All investment strategies have the potential for profit or loss. The host is operating on behalf of Harborside Partners Incorporated exclusively.